1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I am Sher Ali Tareen, your host. In his majestic and encyclopedic new book, Slavery in Islam, Jonathan Brown presents a sweeping analysis of Muslim intellectual, political and social entanglements with slavery and some of the thorniest conceptual and ethical problems involved in defining and writing about slavery. Self-reflective and bold, slavery in Islam also offers a remarkable combination of intellectual and social history, anchored in layers of complex yet eminently accessible textual analysis. What makes talking about slavery so difficult? What are the dominant discourses on and attitudes about slavery that have dominated Muslim history? What are some of the major points of overlap and fissure between Western and Muslim understandings of slavery? And how one must confront the ethical and interpretive challenges brought about by the presence of slavery in Islam? These are among the questions Brown explores and addresses in this monumental work of scholarship that is sure to spark many conversations and debates within and outside Islamic studies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Jonathan Brown. Hello, Jonathan. How are you doing? Hey, how are you doing? Nice to talk to you again uh well uh great to have you on the new books network and on new books and islamic studies uh as i was saying before we started recording our conversation uh this is such an encyclopedic uh, uh masterpiece uh jonathan so uh really i think this book will be much discussed debated and it's uh, uh, a really uh fascinating uh and a very detailed read uh so thanks for this and uh I was wondering if we can perhaps begin, uh, since you've been on the New Books Network before, so people uh, have a sense of your journey into Islamic studies. But I was wondering if I could ask you how you got to write this uh, particular book.
0: Okay. Uh, Well, first of all, thanks a lot um, for having me on, and and uh, for you know, I know it takes a lot of time to read these books, and so I I really appreciate it. Uh, So, well, this book is have a long time uh coming and that and that when i, I wrote uh, my previous book which was called misquoting muhammad the challenge and choices of interpreting the prophet's legacy and it's kind of about uh, sunni intellectual history especially hermeneutics and dealing with the challenges of interpretation and and kind of class between clash between truth inside of scripture and truth outside of scripture and how you reconcile these two so the last chapter i kind of used i wanted to tackle what i consider to be sort of the ultimate uh moral hermeneutic problems that challenges that muslims face today and uh, one was the issue of wife beating so from Quran verse 434 that talks about striking wives and the other the second issue is slavery um to I see these as kind of the, the two ultimate like i said moral hermeneutic challenges and uh but <laughs> i didn't I wrote the so I wrote the last chapter on on wife beating, but I it was just not feasible for me to do something on slavery. I just didn't know enough. I didn't I knew essentially nothing about the topic, and I didn't have the time or the space. So I kind of put that off, and that was you know maybe 2012, 2013 around that time. And then ISIS happened, and the whole issue of ISIS and enslavement of minorities and sex slavery of Yazidi women and girls that happened and so it really kind of before this issue had had been there and i think muslims had gone challenging but i mean this but sort sure, of i think a lot of the people just ignored it or didn't really think about it or didn't weren't asked about a lot but then when isis happened it really kind of blew this into the mainstream and, and really became a real issue of challenge for a lot of well, a lot of muslims or people even talking about islamic studies and so i i i wanted to to talk about this to to bring this issue up i wanted to to write something about it and um so i did and i i work with a group called Yakhine institute which we do um kind of self clarifying issues of controversy and and sort of targets of islamophobia um uh, we you know write things online that are meant to be kind of accessible but accurate but accessible and so I wrote something on on the kind of issue of defining slavery for that, and then I realized that this is just not something you can write like a series of online essays about. You have to deal with it comprehensively, and so this—that's where this book came from. Sort of it, the answer, I guess. Well, actually, I should go back and say that. I mean, really, this book started when I when I first became Muslim when I was in in college, and. Um, in fact, I even start the book with this, you know, that I was basically, you know, one day just reading a translation of the Quran, and it came across uh, these verses in Surah An-Nahl that talk about uh, where the Quran uses slavery, as sort of the, the the parable of like a man who's rich versus a man who's a slave and has no power, and just sort of using this parable to talk about God, you know, God versus false gods and idols. But I was struck because I, I thought to myself, I was. wait a second how can the quran just mention this and not say you know slavery is evil or slavery is wrong how can this just be so mundane it doesn't even get mentioned and then of course there's lots of other times in the quran that slavery is mentioned or slaves are mentioned and so you know I, i just i think like a lot of people you know i just had this i didn't understand how this could be allowed or go unremarked on so i um it kind of became like a real issue for me. And, and I think eventually I, I really wanted to write about it and deal with it. And so that this book is kind of an answer to that, to those questions.
1: Now, in the introduction and the first chapter, you spend a lot of time and a lot of uh, thought into the whole question of defining this category of slavery. And a question that runs throughout the book is this question of, is it possible to have a trans-historical Uh, definition of this idea of slavery or not and after going through multiple possibilities you end chapter one by saying uh, yes slavery does exist but with a lot of uh, caveats and 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 a lot of nuances attached to that so without going into all the details I was wondering if you could choose perhaps a couple of uh, major factors or problems that are associated with defining this category or answering the question which is the question of chapter one's title does slavery exist? What are two sort of major problems or issues at hand uh, in relation to uh, slavery in the Islamic tradition or more broadly? Uh...
0: Uh, Yeah, boy, that's a tough topic. So basically what what I realized is you can't really talk about this topic without kind of going back to first principles. You can't, I mean, you can talk about it, people do all the time. You can't really have a Profound kind of moral, on, almost like moral ontological discussion about this issue, without really questioning um, the terms you use and where they come from and how we think about them. I, I one of the, the things I analogize it to in the first chapter is the issue of of terrorism. It's sort of, I think it's sort of like terrorism, right? So once you introduce the word terrorism into a conversation, uh, you can't really have the whole conversation is skewed after that. You can't really talk about, well, you know, this group is a terrorist group. You can't then say, well, but, you know, they're not that bad or, you know, but what about, you know, they also feed people or, you know, it's, a, it's sort of it 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 the discourse becomes completely shaped by the term and the term is deeply politicized, right? We all know, uh, you know, one person's terrorist, another person's freedom fighter. Um, So I, I kind of wanted to to use that as an analogy to show how, uh, terms can really, um, once they're introduced, if they're not looked at critically from the beginning, they they can really uh, shape discourse, certainly uh, sort of retrievably. Uh, the second thing about about the, I think analogous to of terrorism or terrorism studies is that uh, terrorism is a term that is there has no agreed upon definition, so it's an unusual feature where well actually it's not that unusual, right? So like religious studies, for example, I mean uh, there's a there's a number of fields that deal with the, the central object of investigation is actually um, kind of undefined or there's no agreed upon definition or that a discussion about its definition uh, plunges you immediately into the the kind of irreconcilable or seemingly irreconcilable divisions within the field itself. So something like, what is terrorism? What is slavery? And so, that, you know, sure enough, within slavery studies, there's a whole debate about whether there actually is one thing transhistorically across history that you can call slavery that you can be talking about slavery in the ancient Near East and slavery in medieval China and slavery in, in, the, in the Americas in the 19th century. And really, can you actually have one conversation about slavery? Or are you talking about different phenomena and sort of imposing some unified uh, term to join them? Uh, that, that's one school. The other school of thought, which is the majority, would say, yes, of course, there's something transhistorical called slavery, but then you get into the issue of how you define that. So I, the first chapter kind of runs through the debates and, uh, you know, uh, uh, it sort of starts out by talking about questions of of realism, moral realism, or even um, philosophical realism versus uh, sort of discourse construction or nominalism where, you know, does, is there actually something out there in the universe? Is there a reality out there in the universe? Or are we just constructing reality in our language, in our communication with one another? Um, and so I talk about how kind of definition is the first step of that, and then discourse formation. This is all well known, uh, you know, well trodden territory. Uh, so then I, I talk about you know, what are the challenge of de- de- defining slavery trans historically. Uh, it's relatively easy to define slavery within a society or within a legal system or even within a civilization, uh, but to define his- slavery kind of globally and trans historically is really difficult because. Um, the terms that we would use sort of historically would be, we talk about freedom, we being kind of the West and also the Islamic tradition as a Western tradition, right? So we, we would use terms like freedom. So slavery is not being free. Uh, we would use terms like per, a person as property. Um, and I show that, uh, that, you know, that both these concepts, freedom and property, are so ambiguous and contextually determined that, if you wanna take them out of context and use and talk about them transhistorically, you have a problem, which is that the terms are so vague, they don't mean anything, right? So freedom is just, being a slave is just having more restrictions on your freedom than a free person has. And exactly how many more restrictions or what those restrictions are really depends on where you are, so that doesn't really help. Um, and being property, how, do you, how would you even define property? You know, property is some strong degree of control over something. You could talk about it more clearly in the, you know, common law tradition or Islamic tradition, but across continents and centuries, you're just left with some degree of control over something else. And so, a slave is somebody who somebody else has some degree of control over, which again, pretty much is almost any relationship we can imagine. So, what I talk about is how really a a lot of slavery studies is, and and this is there's a lot of debate about like reflexive awareness about this in slavery, state. so I don't wanna, I'm not acting like I'm coming out of, you know, the blue and saying, hey, let me, you know, I'm gonna kind of do an Edward Saidian orient, you know, analysis of your of your field and tell you what's wrong with it. I I, do, I wouldn't presume to do that. Um, I, I'm just not qualified to, to do that. Uh, but, so I really kind of drew on the internal discourse within slavery site itself uh, in doing this. Um, so one of the, the problems is that really, I think when, we again we kind of western academy talk about slavery trans historically or globally we're really sort of we know what slavery is it's sort of we you know slavery is like there's people in chains and there's people on auction blocks and there's people getting whipped and people um you know there's a maybe there's a a lot of times a racial element and a notion of darker people being enslaved and um there's trauma and all these things and uh very clear kind of racial or phenotypical distinction between the slaver the slaver and the enslaved. And so when what we really do is sort of we go around world history and kind of look for things that match that 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 appear to be the same thing. And we try to come up with definitions that kind of work to put everything that we think is slavery inside the definition and keep everything outside of it's not slavery outside of that definition, but Um, when something doesn't fit, we sort of either make an exception for it, or we adjust our definition a little bit. But then you get to the, the issue, which Ibn Taymiyyah brings up really well, which is, what exactly is definition doing Then I mean, if your definition is really just sort of being stretched or tightened, when you come across something that you want to put inside or outside the definition, you actually know what it is you're talking about. And you're just trying to create a The definition is just sort of a crutch, a scholarly crutch that you use to articulate that, that sense of of what this thing is, it's already in your mind. So what is that thing that's already in our mind? And I I talk about how that is sort of our Atlantic experience, North Atlantic experience of of slavery and European enslavement of Africans.
1: Now, I actually want to, uh turn to chapter four before coming to two and three to continue this uh, sort of line of conversation and uh, sort of the question i want to ask you is this category that you spent a lot of time discussing in chapter four what you call the slavery conundrum and the two things that i found particularly interesting in this chapter is one the comparison that you made about uh, sort of the american traditions of slavery and confronting that past and uh, the islamic tradition and you sort of talk about Two advantages and also disadvantages, or you know, problems, or also uh, uh, p- possibilities or avenues that open up. And you talk about ways in which, uh, you know, as much as you have discussions of the category of slavery in Islamic law, they're not tied to the category of race per se, whereas that is the case in the American tradition or history. Uh, but on the other hand, in the Islamic tradition, there is a certain sacrality associated with these traditions around slavery. So there is both advantages and disadvantages. And then the second thing that I found really interesting was uh, to sort of uh, touch on what you were saying about slavery studies, that you know arguments like uh, uh, the category of freedom or bondage or so on, that these being fluid categories are something that is quite acceptable in slavery studies. In fact, as you mentioned on one instance, these are actually quite banal points now, but in the popular imaginary, saying that these things are ambiguous uh, Uh, create a lot more controversy. So anyways, uh, I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners a bit what is this slavery conundrum and how then do you sort of negotiate it in your own writing in this chapter as you traverse uh, American traditions, Islamic traditions, slavery studies and popular responses uh, as you present them through sort of uh, anonymous screenshots and social media comments and so on
0: um okay uh so basically when i was writing the book i i kind of as i started i really was felt i really felt really challenged about how i was going to um organize how how i was going to talk about this not not of topics you mentioned and I happened to—I was—I remember I was in Turkey. It was the summer of 2017, and then that was when the Charlottesville protests happened. I remember watching them on on the news, or you know, like seeing kind of social media discussions about them. And there was this um, discussion where Tucker Carlson on Fox News—he comes out and he says, you know, talking about the statue of Thomas Jefferson and how people want to take it down because Thomas um, Jefferson was a slave owner and you know had sex with his female slave and had children with her, or whatever. Um, and he's also the architect of the American Republic and the writer of the Declaration of Independence, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, and he sort of, he says, um, yes, slavery is evil. In fact, you know, if you believe in the rights of individuals, there's not anything more evil than it. Uh, but it's also, it's also totally normal in the past. And so pretty much everybody did it like Plato and Aristotle and Muhammad, peace be upon him, or even says peace be upon him. Uh, and then, and so therefore, you know, we kind of accept it. And I just thought, like, look at the the glaring contradiction here, right? So if you're saying something is the, mo- you know, pretty much the most evil thing we can imagine in history, um, then you sort of just whitewash it. Oh so, well, actually, it's just it was a moral taint, and you know, we kind of just look past it. Well, cause if you're going to look to somebody for inspiration to, you know, someone you're going to say this person is going to be the sort of inspiration for our political moral view of our polity. Or this person's gonna be inspiration inspiration for my philosophy or for my religion. How would you accept that this person thought slavery was okay? I mean, again, like I've had this discussion with so many people over the course of this, writing this book. And I, I ask people, I always ask them the same question. If somebody came to give you moral advice or religious advice, and then they said, also, I think slavery is totally fine. Would you take advice from them? I mean, no. You would you would think that they're a monster. You would not consider them to be a person who you could even converse with in good company. So why, you know, but, but here's the, this is the conundrum, which is that essentially every religious and philosophical tradition prior to the basically late 1600s or 1700s uh, didn't really have a problem with something called slavery. Um, so there's no religious or philosophical tradition that is free of this major fault. Uh, So this is what I I call the the slavery conundrum. And this this conundrum, by the way, I want to make it clear, this isn't a real conundrum. This is a conundrum that is created by the way that we in the modern West talk about the issue of slavery. Um, So we kind of, it's a conundrum we create for ourselves. And I think one of the reasons that people have a really hard time discussing this. And of course, I acknowledge that uh, slavery is a cause of like massive trauma for people and still affects uh, societies. But in terms of intellectual discussion, like I think one of the reasons that it's so um, hard for people to really talk about is because they, your uh, mind, people have a sort of a sense that there's internal contradictions, or when you point that out, it becomes very stressful for people, and they don't want they don't want to acknowledge that or to address that. So I, the the features of the slavery there's the, there's three the slavery conundrum is that there's three axioms, and these all are true and they but they also cannot actually be held at the same time so they're mutually contradictory so the first one is that slavery is a gross and intrinsic evil so again how do we know this is true uh just go to a cocktail party and try and say anything good about slavery or that you know it's not that bad or whatever i mean you're gonna get you know this will not be accepted uh the second feature or second axiom is that uh, slavery is slavery, all slavery is slavery. So there's no good, bad, bad, good slavery and bad slavery. Um, Again, imagine sort of talking about slavery in a cocktail party and saying, well, this slavery issue wasn't that bad. Um, You would would immediately be called an apologist for slavery. And the third feature or the third axiom is is that our past has some degree of moral or even legal authority over us. And so we don't, you know, if, if we, we could actually be totally consistent and say, um, you know, yes, slavery is a gross and intrinsic evil. Yes, all slavery is slavery. And so, yeah, basically anybody who endorsed anything that we see as slavery in the past, we're just going to throw into the kind of historical garbage bin of a morally compromised individual to morally compromised traditions and not deal with them. You know, move on from there. Uh, but the fact is that. People, whether they're Christians or Muslims or Jews or Americans, right, who think about the Constitution. Um, the, the last axiom is based on the idea that that whether you're coming from a religious tradition or a kind of a philosophical tradition or a political tradition, um, people don't want to condemn their past to so the moral garbage dump or to moral obsolescence. Hang on, hashim, hashim in felt like an ad ak telephone, can a it fell as bad warak Okay, Shukran. Sure, um, so that, that's like the, the what I call the, the moral uh, the slavery conundrum. And there's a sort of American slavery conundrum and the Islamic slavery conundrum. And they're actually very similar, except that the, the American one is, um, it, the, the Muslim one in some ways is more difficult because, you know, in theory, you could be American and say, well, you know, Thomas Jefferson was a very compromised person or something like that. Um uh, but in you know an Islamic tradition if you say that the Hashim I'm Hashim I can't talk. You have to go. Hashim I know. I can not i I understand that okay? Don't don't interrupt me, please. I'm sorry about that. I know this is probably horrible. But um So the the in some ways the the Islamic tradition is the Islamic kind of slavery kind of is really in this way implacable, I guess, or unresolvable because if you say that if you say that the 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 Prophet Muhammad or that's really great guys, but I'm in the middle of it. I know I understand that I can't guys I can't have this happen. I'm Sorry, I'm talking on the doing interview and I can't keep having interruptions. Sorry, I was like, um, he just built a gingerbread house, and really wants me to see it. And it's like, um, Okay, so I don't know, I'm, I don't know how I'm gonna have this like, make any sense when you put it together. But I would say that the Islamic conundrum is in some ways much more difficult because to a morally impugn, the founder of the Islamic tradition, in this case, you know, God and the Prophet Muhammad, uh, you end up with something that is either uh, technically kufr, technically unbelief. So if you were to, you know, go to any Muslim scholar in history that I know of and say, I think the Prophet Muhammad committed a major egregious moral sin, or even worse than that, he committed this and didn't even know it was wrong, uh, You you would not be Muslim anymore. And in addition, uh, even if we put aside the kind of technicalities uh, why are you taking religious and moral advice from guidance from somebody who either was okay with slavery or didn't even know that it was not that it, it was evil and should that he should not have been okay with it right so that's the the real intense um uh, dispensation of the of the islamic slavery conundrum
1: so uh, let's switch to uh chapter two, in which you talk about slavery in the Sharia. And uh, so if you could perhaps uh, describe a bit some of the sort of dominant uh, discourses and attitudes on uh, on this category of Riq um, in, in, in the Sharia, and then you also talk about some very interesting ambiguities about uh, sort of... Uh, describing uh, slaves as property, but then they're also human beings. So that creates a fair, a fair bit of ambiguity. So I was wondering, uh, so two parts of the question. One is if you could talk a bit about sort of dominant discourses and attitudes and some of these ambiguities, and then how does uh, the discussions on slavery in the Sharia uh, compare to other legal traditions that you also discuss very uh, uh, uh in in quite uh, elaborate ways, the Roman tradition or the other Near recent traditions and so on.
0: Okay. Um, So I think, you know, it's really, here it's really where you get a reminder that Islam is a Western tradition, you know, and obviously an Abrahamic tradition, because um, after having talked about how, you know, how it's very hard to come up with the trans-historical definition of slavery that works. Actually, when you're talking about slavery in the Islamic versus kind of Western tradition, you, you actually can have a pretty unified conversation, a pretty, com, uh, pretty consistent conversation, because they both really—they're—they're incredibly—they're very influenced by obviously the Abrahamic tradition of the Bible and the Quran, but also the Roman legal tradition. And uh, just to be clear, I'm not endorsing the kind of Patricia Crona view that, uh, or even Goldzahir view that Islamic law is sort of Roman law. Um, papered over with Islamic uh, uh, coloring or something. But if there is an area of Islamic law where there is huge import and reliance on uh, pre-Islamic Near Eastern law, especially Roman law, it's definitely the laws on slavery. I mean, yeah. uh, without a doubt, uh, there's just major pillars of Sharia tradition on slavery just comes straight out of the Roman Near Eastern tradition. For example, the idea that uh, slavery is transmitted through the mother. Uh, and even Imam Shafi notes this in his, his um, he says that, um, you know, it, there's a kind of a contradiction here because in Islamic law, both your, your lineage your identity and your religion come from your father, but your slave status or free status comes from your mother, uh, which he says is like, um, you know, pretty serious, uh, inconsistency, but he would kind of come up with his own explanation for it, which is that, um, you know, uh, it, Islam is more important. So it's not, you know, religion is ultimately the most important thing. It's more important than um than slave status. So that's why I country your father. It's sort of not a very convincing explanation. So that's a, a major feature that uh, that comes from this Roman tradition. But in some ways, also there's like really good argument against the kind of gold zahercona thesis, uh, because Islamic law breaks with the recent Eastern Roman law in just absolutely profound ways as well, and does so from the very beginning. Um, Although what's interesting is that some of the the most consistent and most important rules regarding slavery in the Sharia actually don't come from the Quran or clearly from any Hadiths, but they're agreed upon immediately. There's no debate about them really, uh, but there's no clear scriptural anchor for them. One is that uh, Muslims cannot be enslaved. And two is that the only route into slavery is capture in warfare. So capture of a non-Muslim who's outside the abode of Islam in warfare by Muslims. That's the only way that someone can get enslaved. You can't be a debt slave, you can't be you can't sell yourself into slavery, you can't give your children into slavery, you can't be enslaved for a crime. Although these things happen at various times in Islamic history, they're not technically allowed in the Sharia. And then of course, another huge break is that, uh, whereas all sort of the direction of Near Eastern law and custom regarding slavery was that a child born of a male slave owner and his female slave would be either illegitimate, either or illegitimate and or um, uh, a slave, right? So you can't have a, pre-Islamic Near East, you don't have someone, a master sleep have sex with this female slave and then a child born, have that child be legitimate and free. Um, it, the child's either illegitimate and a slave, or just a slave, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in in Roman law, they had, and, and Roman law under the Christian Church, they had moved towards sort of even allowing you to marry your slave, as because they just wanted all sexual activity to be monogamous and within marriage. Uh, but there was no, the idea that you would have a concubine in addition to a wife was simply unacceptable. So Islam kind of just completely goes in the, op, you know, the opposite direction to take a 90 degree turn and says that not only can you have a free wife and a concubine, you can have a free wife and as many slave concubines as you want, but your children born of your slave concubines are actually going to be free, uh, legitimate, and they're going to have the same social standing as a child born of a free wife. So this is like completely unprecedented and a real, really dramatic break from pre-Islamic tradition. So there's incredible continuities, also incredible uh, changes introduced. And again, this happened kind of just immediately and apparently with, with very strong consensus amongst Muslim jurists. Uh, in terms of ambiguities, I mean, in in a way, I mean, I feel cheesy saying this because it's 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 like almost a something you see so often when you read about slavery, you'll see this statement that you know, everybody knows that slavery is sort of an ambiguous status because sla- a slave is both property and a human being. So you have this... Weird situation where, you know, um, you're property like a book, but you're also a human being like this other any other human being. And so there's this the status of a slave is very ambiguous and uh, kind of liminal and oscillates between a person and a thing. Uh, So and, and you can just see this in Islam. I mean, you could just sit in a book, read a book of fiqh, and you will just get example after example after example after example of this in almost every possible area of law. And um, I mean, there's there's a number in the book, I'll give you one that's not in the book because I just came across the other day, I thought it was so interesting, which is um, when you are, let's say a a free man marries a slave woman. So let's say I have a friend, you know, Ahmed, and I have I'm always vilifying myself and whatever, you know, I have a female slave and I say, okay, Ahmed, I am going to marry my female slave to you. and. Now, according to Islamic law, which is just agreed upon essentially by every school of law as far as I know, uh, if these two is couple has a child, the child will be a slave because it goes through the mother and the child will actually belong to me. So question is who pays, who has to pay for that child's maintenance or who has to pay for the wife's maintenance even? Um, and you see like, for example, the Hanbali school of law says the owner, me, I have to pay for the child and for the, the wife's maintenance because I am the owner and they are my property. And that sort of supersedes or trumps all other relationships in the situation. The Shafi and Maliki school say, no, husbands pay for them to maintain their wives and they pay to maintain their children. And that is what, uh, you know, this isn't, you know, kind of looks past the slavery issue here and makes it just about a marriage relationship. The Hanafi school says, well, it really depends. So is this, is the wife, slave wife here, is she spending most of her time with her husband? You know cooking for him and hanging out with him or and living with him or does she live with the master and she's actually still working for him most of the time so it kind of depends on where is she spending most of her time where is her domicile who is she benefiting then that person would cover her expenses so you can see kind of a a, a an oscillation between the the property aspect um governing everything versus the relation the human relationship aspect and then almost in the Hanafi one is like You know, where is the utility going? So this is, you can come up with, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of such examples of the liminality and the oscillation between human and property that you see in cases of slavery and law.
1: Turning to uh, Chapter 3, Slavery in Islamic Civilization, uh, in which you really show the multiple kinds of roles that, uh, uh, slaves have uh, performed and adopted in uh, muslim history and politics uh, i mean the multiple uh, subheadings of this uh, chapter include slave as saint as slave as elite administrator as soldier as rebel uh, as scholar and so on uh, let's talk a bit about the slave as a leader or uh, as an administrator and you talk about an interesting tension there in that uh, In sort of the Islamic legal tradition, you mentioned that the idea of the slave becoming a ruler over other Muslims is not permissible. But then, of course, we also have examples of former slaves becoming rulers and so on. Uh, So uh, speak a bit about how that kind of tension was often resolved and what are some key examples of uh, slaves with uh, political power and authority that we have seen in Muslim history?
0: So I think this is something that gets you know sort of like a I don't know if it's a debate or sort of settled debate in Mamluk studies or kind of Mamluk era studies where, you know, people will often say even today, almost, you know, like a at a more undergrad teaching level or, you know, popular writing level to say, whether well, there's these there's slave dynasties in Islamic history. So the Mamluks are the whole states run by slaves uh, and people, other people, especially uh, most recently uh, a scholar named Kobe Youssef has a great article on this, where, um, Kobi Yosef, where they, he points out that, and it has been pointed out that, in fact, the Mamluk rulers were not slaves, and they didn't call themselves Mamluks, right? They called themselves or the Cercas, the Circassian state or the Turkish state, and that they were you know, quite clear that they were not slaves, and they made very good, they made very clear, and they made it sure that it was known that they had been manumitted, because yeah, according to the Sharia, a slave cannot be a ruler, cannot be the head of a state. Uh, so, but, but where they where slavery is part of this world and a huge part is that the the the, the idiom or the experience that held together this elite system and the system of rule was this idea of importing uh, young slaves from the Turkish uh, tribes or the Circassian tribes of the steppes of Russia or the Caucasus and bringing them in and training them to be elite soldiers and that that system of slave of slaves belonging to a master and those households are what rules the state. So that that actually is slavery is hugely important, even if technically the Sultans are not slaves themselves. Uh you do have a few uh I think I give one or two instances where someone might actually be a slave, but most of the time these elite administrators or the rulers are not slaves. And this is true for the Mamluks, the Mediterranean Mamluk Sultanate and also the Indian uh Mamluks dynasty during the, the time of the Delhi Sultanate. Um and actually Ibn Battuta notes this, Ibn Battuta notes that uh the I think m uh ibn Tuhulok had actually made it very clear that he'd manipulated. He had been manumitted before he could be the ruler. Of course where you see do see slave administrators is um well you see it a lot of times in Islamic history, but the clearest example is the Ottoman devshirme system and the, the Endurun Mektabi, the inter the in, interior school the inner school that that takes a sort of smart um Devsirmei boys and uh, and educates them and they go through a series of tests and eventually the, the most successful become the, the page the, the personal pages of the, the sultan and then they'll be educated to be the, the very senior administrators of the Ottoman Empire and this is the case really through the end of the, the 1600s that you have or through the, certainly the early 1600s that you have the senior administration of the empire is actually are actually uh, the slaves of the sultan. I um, mean to the point where there's this one case where you know. One of the viziers tries to go and testify in court and he can't because he's a slave. So they, they won't accept his testimony, even though he's the grand vizier. Uh,
1: let's uh, turn to uh, the other sort of major segment of this book, which is uh, arguments, uh, Muslim arguments for uh, sort of uh, uh, critiquing slavery or the abolishment of slavery or showing sort of the normative uh illegitimacy in the modern period or early modern period and so on and you talk about multiple examples and of course we will not be able to go into all of them but could you perhaps uh, describe some key strands of muslim scholars and sort of key arguments that uh, sort of major arguments that you've seen in uh, uh, modern muslim history in trying to come to grips with and trying to sort of uh, uh, deem slavery as no longer uh, Legitimate uh, in in Islam. What are some key arguments that have come up in regards to that? Yeah.
0: So you know you could probably do a pretty I could probably do a pretty quick taxonomy of, of this, which is um okay. So the kind of starting from the the, the section that um, the the strongest disapproval and kind of complete moral. Ri- rejection of slavery in the Islamic tradition, which is the, uh, the the group or the approach that William Gervais Clarence Smith calls the radical approach. This would be, it's very rare. I mean, you don't see a lot of people, a lot of scholars take it up. And those who do kind of really pay a price uh, in the sense of how they're viewed by other ulama. One is um, uh, Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan died 1898. He's probably the the most clear. And you have kind of a, a, maybe a strain descending from him, especially in South Asian thought of re- uh, Islamic modernist complete rejection of slavery. And so, what this group would say is that, um, you know, uh, what they would say is that, you know, Islam never accepted slavery. So, slavery was never morally acceptable to God and the Prophet. And that, uh, so someone like Sayyid al Khan would say that that's why the Quran always talks about uh, those who your right hands possessed in the past tense. So at the most, slavery. Only, sorry, at the most the Quran only kind of accepts or affirms existing slave relationships, but it yeah you know, it makes clear that there should no not be any more slavery after that. Uh, the the problem with this, I mean, you, you get a moral condemnation of slavery, slavery is part of Islam. The problem is that you essentially lose the entirety of the Sharia tradition after that. So not only that, but you lose essentially all the hadiths that deal with slavery and that seem to affirm it and legitimize it. So there's a huge cost. And of course, the the real problem remains, which is that um, if slavery is um, absolute intrinsic gross moral evil throughout time and space, then why would God and the prophet affirm it even for the existing slave relationships at the time? Why wouldn't it just the Quran just say slavery is evil, cannot be allowed, period, right now, finished, it's over. So the second approach, which is more popular and more accepted, you see from some Islamic kind of reformist, revivalist, like. Rashid Rida died in 1935, which would say that uh, it was not economically possible to eliminate slavery immediately, but that the the Quran and the Sunnah, by uh, restricting the routes into slavery to only capture in war, and by uh, saying that you know by really encouraging in extraordinary ways the emancipation of slaves, that basically there was a very there was going to be a very sharp trajectory set to eliminating slavery. And that basically what had happened is that Muslims had kind of gone off the rails and hadn't really followed that course and had instead sort of started enslaving people right left and center um, so and that so now Muslims can get back to that that original historical impetus or historical trajectory of of eliminating slavery as part of their religion um, and uh, the, the, that allows you sort of it explains why slavery isn't condemned in the Quran or isn't prohibited uh, but you kind of Islamic history is a, then a history of failure. Really, it's a history of failure to follow this mandate. Um, and of course, you also don't get the moral condemnation. Um, if, and this is what asked look: if, if slavery is a gross and intrinsic moral evil throughout space and time, uh, and if God and the Prophet could not accept the gross and intrinsic moral evil, um, why didn't and why didn't the Quran just say, uh, "Look." Uh, Yes, slavery is, cannot be removed right now, but it's evil and should be removed as soon as possible. The Quran never says that. The prophet never has, says that. By the way, this is exactly the same debate that Christians had over the Bible in the, in the 19th century. Uh, abolitionist Christians said Jesus was a sort of a moving front of liberation. He came to, to free everybody. Um, clearly, we should get rid of slavery. And sort of sleep, Christians who supported slavery or were skeptical of these arguments said, why didn't the, Jesus say that then? And, you know, abolitionist Christians would say, well, it would have caused too much enmity and he would have been antagonized too much and he might have been, uh, it might have caused a lot of trauma to which their opponent said, well, Jesus got crucified, you know, and <laughs> this is, uh, it's not like he was, he wasn't not trying to make a splash. Uh, so both Jesus in the Christian tradition and Muhammad are not, are, um, are not, individuals or or messengers who are averse to to causing controversy so then the the next kind of argument over would be this uh, abolition as an aim of the sharia and this this doesn't uh this doesn't kind of reject the sharia tradition or see it as a failure it actually totally embraces the sharia tradition it says that um the emancipation of slaves is an aim of the sharia which is pretty clear um, and is totally kind of indigenous idea to Islamic legal discourse, and that uh, now that slavery is economically unnecessary and it's possible to get rid of it, uh, that um, that uh, that Muslims sort of the, the ultimate fulfillment of this aim of the Sharia would be to um, uh, would be to, to 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 abolish slavery as a legal category. Um, the The benefit of this argument is that you really maintain the integrity of the Sharia tradition. You don't sacrifice it. You don't sort of uh, impugn it as morally uh, aberrant or misguided, um, but there's two problems. One is that, again, you don't have any moral condemnation of slavery qua slavery. And the second thing is that um, slavery doesn't really Uh, the idea of abolition doesn't exist in the Islamic tradition prior to encounters with Europe. So the problem here is that now abolition as a moral idea can't really be legitimately found in the Islamic tradition. Now, what I think is important to keep in mind when discussing this is that uh, abolition is not an indigenous part of any religious tradition or any philosophical tradition that I know of. Um, No society that had slaves which is almost every society in human history uh, abolished slavery prior to the 1700s, you know, and it, the idea of abolition was not really conceivable to societies that had slaves because it was not economically possible or it was not economically desirable in any way. So, uh, you know, in this sense, it's not like, you know, there's this idea in Western history, sort or of popular Western history that's, you know, Western history is this, Journey into freedom, um, and that there's always sort of this this ember or this seed of abolition that kind of matures and blossoms in Western history. Uh, That's just not true. I mean, um, that's sort of part of the West um, myth created about itself, about its own historical development. But uh, abolition is not any more indigenous to Christianity than it is to any other religion. Um, uh, So uh, then, the the next argument over would be to say what I call, you know, if you can't do it right, you can't do it at all argument, which is the argument that is made by uh, Ahmed Bey in 1846, the governor of Tunis, when he abolishes slavery, kind of on British urging in his uh, his his territory. And that's to say that uh, the Sharia has certain rules for how slavery has to be done. Um, you Muslims are not following those rules, so you can't do it at all. Uh, the next... One over would be to say, and this is you see amongst a lot of jurists like Yusuf al-Karadawi or Mufti Taki Osmani, who would say, um, really kind of lean on the state and the, the the power of the ruler to say that accurately, to say that um, if the only route into slavery is through capture in war, and it's the decision of the Imam or the ruler about what to do with prisoners, the ruler can simply say that we're no longer taking prisoners. We're no, we're no longer taking slaves. And it's a sort of executive decision done for the maslahah, the good of the, the Muslim community. Um, so uh, the problem with these approaches is that you don't get a moral condemnation of slavery. It just, ending think slavery is just good policy. And uh, finally, the last one is, is simply to say that actually... Um, there's nothing wrong with slavery, and it's like a legitimate part of the Sharia, and what are you guys talking about? Uh, with with one uh, interesting twist, which is that, uh, Mufti, uh, not Mufti, al um, uh, Femin, the famous Saudi scholar, I think he died in 2001, he was asked during the 1990s, during the, the war in the Balkans, if um, if Bosnian soldiers could take Serbian prisoners as slaves. And he said, uh, technically, yes, but no, don't do it because it would be terrible PR. So, you know, it almost a sort of a cynical idea here that you end slavery just because it's really bad PR for Muslims. Um, the what I think is really important to keep in mind in a lot of these, in fact, on all of these discussions is that the Sharia capacity to prohibit slavery or to abol- abolish it is depends on something called al-mubah, means the restriction of the permissible and so this is something that is very understudied uh, by any scholars as far as i know but it's extremely important and i think my book maybe maybe the most research that's been done on this topic that i've seen um i could be wrong one of my students is doing his dissertation on this topic now so inshallah we'll have much more information about it but uh, the question of to what extent and how do you justify a Muslim ruler prohibiting what was allowed? Prohibiting what was allowed for God on the by God and the prophet. And this issue gets debated, uh, gets discussed a little bit. It really gets discussed most that I've seen in the pre-modern period by Abdul Ghani and Nablusi in the early 1700s around the issue of, of banning coffee shops and banning smoking in the Ottoman Empire. But then it really comes into its own as a discussion in the 19th, late 19th century and the early 20th century in the context of uh, guess what, slavery, the abolition of slavery, and also the uh, ideas about restricting
1: and prohibiting polygamy. Uh, turning to chapter six, uh, the prophet and ISIS, uh, two two questions about that chapter. Uh, one is, Jonathan, could you explain a bit, and you talk about this in the chapter, sort of ISIS's attitudes towards slavery, and especially on the question of uh, sex and sexuality, you make the point of how incredibly it departed from the prior sort of uh, normative uh, attitudes towards slavery and uh, the question of sexuality. Could you share with our listeners a bit about what were the major uh, reasons why you, found, uh, you find ISIS to have departed massively from the past uh, precedent? And then second sort of unrelated uh, question, which also comes up in the chapter, which is you give your own opinion in terms of how does one engage? How does one wrestle with or perhaps even overcome the slavery conundrum as you discuss throughout the book. Uh, So what is your opinion on that point? Yeah. I
0: mean, obviously ISIS was a huge, in some ways like the backdrop of the book, uh, as I think it is for a lot of discussions of slavery um, in, in current days or in the, you know, recent times. And you know, the, as I say in the beginning of the book, the, the problem with ISIS's argument is that it's a really good argument, right? <laughs> the problem is it's, it's like, you know, it, it's so devastating because it's, it's very, it just slices cleanly, you know. Um, they say, look, uh, Muslims follow the Qur'an and the Sunnah of the Prophet, and the Qur'an and the Sunnah both allow slavery. And the Prophet had slaves, and the Prophet had a sex slave. So why can't we do that? And, oh, you're saying that, oh, slavery can only happen when Muslims capture non-Muslims in war. Well, we just did that. We just captured a bunch of non-Muslims in a war. Oh, it has to be a legitimate war declared by a legitimate ruler. Well, we have the caliph. Who's more legitimate than the caliph, right? Um. So you sort of run out of responses. And the ultimate response, I think, to ISIS particularly is to say that you know, one the, the the you can't you cannot enslave non-Muslims who live under Islamic rule. You can't enslave Vimis, and at, although they were oppressed and you know subject to purges at various times, especially during the Ottoman Empire in the nineteenth century, uh, Yazidis were considered Vimis, right? So they were even in you know in the Ottoman army later on. Um, so you cannot. And the principle is that dhimmat al-Muslimin wa'hida. You cannot, the, the dhimma status doesn't change when a new Muslim state comes along, or a new Muslim ruler comes along, or one state conquers another. So uh, you cannot revoke the status of these people as as protected non-Muslims who are unenslavable according to the Sharia. And the only way that ISIS justifies this is the way they justify pretty much everything they do, which is to say that. Anybody who doesn't agree with them or acknowledge their authority or submit to them, any alleged Muslim who doesn't submit to them is in fact not a Muslim because why would you not submit to the legitimate authority? Oh, is it because you're from a different country because you follow that other country's government? Well, then you're a, a polytheist mushrik because you are worshiping that national identity or that ruler of, above God and above your loyalty to Islam. So. ISIS is, is, so that's one of the reasons that they get criticized by even really extreme jihadi ideologues like Abu Muhammad al-Maknesi or, you know, uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri is that they are completely, uh, they're, they're infected. They, I mean, literally, this is what al-Qaeda says. And, and they say that, you know, that um, ISIS is infected by the disease of takfir, of declaring not people to be non-Muslims. So they declare anybody who's not like them to be a non-Muslim. And this is in this sense, they're like the Harajites and they don't consider any previous state or any agreement that anyone's entered into to be valid or binding for them. So that's how they are able to engage in the enslavement that they did or they were able to engage in it. And that's why their their argument is so dangerous. Now, um, in terms of my own views, you know, how sort of what is the, the best Muslim argument or the most accurate Muslim argument for abolition? I would say it's the, it's the abolitionist name of the Sharia Um, because I think one, this is demonstrably true. I think that as far as I know, there's no religious tradition or philosophical tradition that is as obsessed with emancipation as the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet are. They're obsessed with the idea of freeing slaves. And um, if they don't say that you should free all slaves or end slavery as a, Legal phenomenon it's because this was not something that anybody thought about prior to essentially the early modern period, and this is important, like even you know even Spartacus and the Zandra rebels uh, and all these other pre modern slave rebellions, none of them were saying we're going to end slavery; they just didn't want to be slaves. in fact, they oftentimes took their own slaves from their enemies, so you know the idea that you know, Muslims have to answer for why they don't have an indigenous, um, an indigenous sort of emergence of abolition, as it happens in Britain and America in the 1600s, is uh, is anachronistic. I mean, nobody has this because it's not imaginable for human societies that have slaves. It's just not. It would be like me suggesting that we, you know, abolish like chairs or something like that. It just wouldn't make any sense. And uh, you know this is what Aristotle says in, one, in his Politics, a fascinating statement. He says uh, there will be slaves until uh, looms spin themselves or looms move themselves. Like you know, looms for sewing fa- fabric. Like until they move themselves, you're going to have slaves, which is basically what happened, right? Now when do you you have slaves until you have other sources of power that you use to move things. So uh, I, I think that that's the The best argument. And then something that comes up kind of at the end of the book, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I'll just sort of preempt it maybe, is to say the other real issue is not just how do I justify abolition in the Islamic tradition, but how do I as a Muslim explain my moral disgust at slavery? You know, if you go to a mosque or something, and I, you know, a mosque in the US, and I say, okay, who here thinks slavery is wrong? Anybody who doesn't raise their hand is lying. Because if, if you live in America today, of course you think slavery is wrong. You cannot live in the United States and not have this feeling. You're, you know, and you, you not feel disgusted at the idea of slavery. Every, I mean, I have this feeling. I think everybody does. So even if you come up with an idea of, well, how do we talk about this you know, in the Islamic tradition, how we think about abolition? The problem is I still have in my heart or in my gut A sense of disgust at something that was allowed by god and the prophet and it was carried it was practiced by the prophet so how do i explain that and that i i talk about through just saying that um and this is you know maybe controversial but also very obvious which is that many of our very deeply held moral convictions are not the products of us sort of having apprehended or understood some trans historical moral reality that exists above and outside us, a lot of them are just customary rights and wrongs. You no know, basically things of custom or even based on technology. You know, why uh you know, why do Americans think eating dog meat is just absolutely repulsive and morally disgusting and some other societies don't have a problem? Right? This isn't some moral reality that all humans should should grasp if they use their reason or if they they if they Contemplate their nature, um, and a lot of things that we think about, you know, that we look down on other people for. Oh, they're they're not clean. They don't shower. They smell bad. These are almost moral disapproval we have, whereas a lot of people just don't have access to the technology technologies we have for, for cleaning ourselves. So, I kind of bring up the, the the fact that our moral avulsion at slavery, which is sincere, is um it doesn't mean that it's a uni- moral universal it's simply a, a, a customary wrong in our society in our time and you know i know that's might be controversial for people to hear but to them i would simply say that just because something is a customary wrong doesn't mean that that's not important it doesn't mean that that doesn't that that's not a really that's not a profound moral conviction you, help, you hold it just means that it's not necessarily a moral conviction that um exists Sort of outside of us, throughout space and time, it's something that um, certain societies develop at certain times.
1: Now, uh, as a final sort of question, uh, uh, Jonathan, you end the book uh, rather than sort of a uh, more traditional conclusion. You end the book with a section you call uh, "concubines and consent." Uh, so, why did you end the book on this particular note, and what did you, uh, what point or argument did you make? In this conclusion,
0: well, I mean, so if slavery is sort of the ultimate moral and moral hermeneutic challenge that Muslims and, in fact, many other religious and interpretive traditions face, uh, then sex slavery is like the, you know, it's like the the uh, ultimate, um, the like the pinnacle of that challenge, right? It's because not only do you deal with slavery. But you deal with the question of consent and sex, which gets us into issues of autonomy and, of course, what these things mean in our society today. And that I mean, that alone would be its own separate crisis, let, let alone the fact that it's combined with slavery. So I really want, you know, I, I don't think you can just get into that discussion without having first passed through like a, a whole discussion about slavery as a, how do we think about it? Um, trans-historically? what are the challenges that it presents? Uh how do you think about um you know what's the slavery conundrum? So I, I just uh I you, you can only I think even begin to unravel this uh after looking at all these issues. And as I, I said in the beginning of the of that chapter, the last chapter, you know, the there's one thing that really, you know, so Muslim scholars today, like I've heard numerous Muslim scholars, very famous ones, literally like make stuff up about this. Like they'll say that Maria was not this, the female slave of the prophet. She was his wife. There's just, and I, I demonstrate in an appendix to the book, there's simply no evidence of this. There's just no evidence that Maria was not the female slave of the prophet with whom he had sex and had a child. Uh, so, um, you know, this is a massive crisis. Like I understand why these scholars um, almost misrepresent reality because uh, people cannot deal with this. Like Muslims cannot deal with this uh, to think that the Prophet that this was something that happened in his life. And so that that's what I wanted to try and do in this chapter was to help people understand why this is such a crisis why it seems so irre- irreconcilable. And um, I, I actually want to be clear. I, I don't think that it is possible to reconcile our late modern urban Western notions of morality with the prophet having a sex slave. Like it's not, it's not actually, I, I, I don't think it is possible to reconcile these. I think these are irreconcilable moralities. Um, and you you just have to choose between the two. Um, or you have to accept that one of them is not universal, or 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 is is you know has has exceptions to it, or something. I I don't think that this is resolvable. But I what I do try to do is say that one of the ways that we can understand why this is such this is such a such a chasm between these two moralities is because of the really sort of um, super loaded or. Um, uh intensified and extremely prominent role that consent plays in our sexual morality in kind of late urban america late modern urban america um and i, I talk about some of the the, the 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 theorists who've sort of complicated or discussed the issue of autonomy and consent people like judith butler and leila uh leila ahmed no leila, ahmed, leila Bulu, i'm sorry and um also uh, more recently joseph fischel and his two books uh, sex and harm in the age of consent and then more recently the Controversially or provocatively titled "Screw Consent," and I would really recommend those books to anybody who's interested in, in looking into this topic. I think it's really in queer studies where you see the most um, liberated and uh, and critical work on this concept of consent uh, being done. So I just try to show that that you know our that, the, the that we we ask consent in our sort of sexual morality. We ask it to do a lot of work that it's not really suited for. Uh, it does. It's sort of the, the only criterion for m- moral acceptability of, of sexual relationships for us, and so we ask it to do a huge amount of work. It doesn't. It's the only act, uh, agent sort of that does any work on this issue for us, and that, that puts us into a number of of really um, um, fragile or ten, uh, tenuous situations in terms of how we we think morally about a lot of relationships, and so I, I I'm not. I'm not criticizing this, I'm simply saying that I think this is a fairly accurate understanding of our late modern urban Western morality. And that uh, if we were to look throughout human history at sort of different moralities around sex, uh, ours would be the furthest away from kind of, it, it's it's a, it's an outlier. And so one of the reasons it, we see this chasm between us and something like the Quranic or Sharia um, conceptualization of, of sex slavery and consent is simply because um, uh, we, you know, there's there's a abnormally abnormally large distance between those two. And finally, I I end with kind of my own um, my own theory, uh, which is that actually there is, you know, it, it might not satisfy critics, but I think that the Islamic legal tradition does actually accomplishes a lot of the same things as our notion of consent does. It simply does throw so through the the concept of harm. So. Um, Yes, in theory, you cannot, there's no such thing as marital rape in Islamic law because the wife's consent is already assumed as part of the marriage relationship. Or there's no such thing as marital rape between a a male slave owner and his female slave because her consent is is irrelevant. Uh, This is in the Islamic tradition. Um, But that if you actually look at not just the kind of the black letter law and fifth manuals, but also fatwas and also court cases, and I bring a lot of examples of these that uh, in fact wives and female concubines, concubines could have their husbands slash owners sexual access to them restricted if they said that this was harming them, was causing them physical harm or discomfort or something. So um, that, that, that uh, what we would kind of see as being done by the concept of consent, uh, Muslim jurists get done through the issue, of, through the, the concept of harm.
1: So As we're coming to the end of our time, uh Jonathan, could you share with our listeners a bit about what's the next uh project you're working on now
0: yeah um well uh the the project I'm working on next is well the one I was working on before I started doing this one and <laughs> it's sort of been sitting on the back burner it's almost done actually, which is a kind of a history of the mazalim or Mavalam courts in Islamic civilization and um there's a uh, I do a uh, critical edition of a Persian treatise on this, and I translate the treatise, um, and I do an analysis of it. Um, and uh, it's it's sort of, it's it's about the Muslim courts, but it really uses that as a way to talk about a bigger issue, which is how Muslims deal with the dissonance between the kind of fiqh or the sort of, the fiqh of uh, the, the, the kind of functioning of Islamic law and their expectation of justice. So what happens when, your, the Islamic legal tradition produces results that seem unjust. And how do Muslims deal with that theoretically? And then how do they deal with it practically? And so the Muslim court is one of the, the, the tools that's used to deal with that. So that's one of the, um, maybe use the concept of Muslim court to talk about this this tension or how, you, how Muslims conceptualize and deal with the tension between uh, the Sharia or fiqh and their expectations of justice.
1: Slavery and Islam by Professor Jonathan Brown, published by One World Press in 2019. Uh, Thank you so much, Jonathan, for your time and uh, for uh, for this uh, great conversation, which I'm sure our listeners will really benefit from. And uh, again, for writing such an uh, encyclopedic uh, and majestic book that I'm sure uh, will uh, spark a lot of conversations and uh, will be read widely and avidly. Uh, So thanks again for coming on New Books Network.
0: Well, thank you. And thanks for your patience.
1: (laughs) So this was my conversation with Professor Jonathan Brown about slavery in Islam. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.